everyone, and welcome to episode number 25 of the Tax Security Podcast, where our panel of experts discuss all things Cisco security, including configuration, troubleshooting, new features, and hot issues being seen by the Cisco Technical Assistance Security Teams. So today, we're going to be talking about DMVPN and Git VPN, as well as FlexVPN. We're going to get into those technologies, talk about when you would want to use each one of them, and get into some of the technical details of them with our VPN experts, our special guest experts. But let's start with introductions of the cast today. We have Blaine Dreyer. How are you doing, Blaine? Hello, Jay. I'm doing fine. That's good. Are you excited that it's Friday? I am excited that I get to go on PTO for the next two weeks. Yeah, we should say that we're taping this episode uh, right before Christmas. So, um, yeah, we're all uh, happy to get out of here for a little while to get some break from work. Next up, we've got Magnus Mortensen. How are you doing, Magnus? I'm doing pretty good. How are you, Jay? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. And we've got David White Jr. Hello, Jay. So you're going down to Florida this year? I am going to sunny Florida. Sunny Florida. That's right. Well, there's no snow down there? Never any snow Has in it ever snowed where you're from down there? In 1978. That was a day you will remember forever. It was uh, the worst day in the town. <laughs> <laughs> it almost never snows where I'm from in Florida. Okay. And we've got... And I like it that way. I, we know. And we've also got uh, the first of our two special guests, Wen Zhang. You may remember him from uh, the Securing Cisco Routers episode, which was episode number 12, uh, almost halfway back in our history. How's it going, Wen? Good, good. Hello, Jay. Hey. And we've also got um, the other Jay uh, is also an escalation engineer on our VPN team. British Jay. Our British, <laughs> British, British Jay. Jay. Uh, Jay Young-Taylor. How's it going, JYT? Thank you for having me back. Excellent. And uh, the last episode you were on was about, um, was it certificates or AnyConnect? It, it was probably to do, it was to do with AnyConnect, but uh, certificates, as you know, is a, is a huge part of securing AnyConnect. So you follow, uh, I don't know, you were mentioning the other day in the hallway about uh, some horrible, nasty certificate flaw that popped up in the news. Tell us, tell us about that. Yes, yes. Um, the whole trust model is based on certificate authorities and the uh, the mutual trust of them and the assumption that they are secure. Uh, recently, there has been quite a few break-ins, some hacking attempts done at some large-scale, well-trusted certificate authorities. Um, one of them was DigiNor, another one was Komodo, and uh, I think there was a couple other certificate authorities that were actually breached, and certificates were issued by them uh, that were illegitimate. So these hackers got in somehow and got the private key? Yes, they got Ugh. they got in and they were able to issue certificates that, that shouldn't have been that issued. That were trusted. Now, the, as we as we know, right, the, these certificates are trusted and when a user tries to go to a website, we're basing on the assumption that the, the certificate authority is only giving it out to the person that's necessary. Um, there was some research done surrounding these break-ins where there was a suspected use by uh, either the state or uh, a group in Iran where they set up and issued, they managed to get a certificate for Gmail and they were able to do a man-in-the-middle attack of people in Iran accessing their Gmail accounts. So, you know, anyone, dissidents, yeah. any normal um, private citizens thinking that they're secured using Gmail for their mail solution were actually having all their emails read by the, this group. And it, it went on for a couple months. 
So JYT,、uh, for our listeners, naturally the question is: Should we be concerned? What is it that we can do? Should we change our Gmail account? Should we be worried? So in effect, there's really nothing an,、uh, you as the end user can do.、Um, when these kinds of、uh, break-ins occur, it's it remains hidden to most people for quite some time because. The browser is doing everything correctly. Your computer is working correctly, and the the trust is is there. And it is assumed that you're connecting to a valid valid、um, server. So really, the the onus on this kind of security is on the CAs and the browser vendors to either revoke or you somehow put on a blacklist these kinds of certificates. Um, recently, the 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 makers of Firefox, Mozilla.、Um, uh, Opera and IE did actually pull the trusted root of Diginor, Diginator, because of this. So they issue some update that pulls it out of the store. The Absolutely,、public. it w- it was a full sale effort by all the vendors, security vendors, to say these people have broken our trust. They can no longer be trusted. We need to remove these from all the trust domains. And that was only real. Solution too to this type of problem because I mean, they could add all the certificates to the CRL, but there's as we know most most devices don't check the CRL and there'd be, you know, you wouldn't really know which ones to revoke if you weren't the one issuing them either.、Mm-hmm. So you could do it only after they were detected. So the only real solution in that case was, you know, to revoke the CA cert. Yeah, there's there's a couple other、um, technical reasons why you couldn't just. Uh, uh, what do you call it?、Uh, add them to the CRL list, primarily because the way browsers are set up, if they try to get a CRL and are un- unable to, they just say, "Oh, okay, well, let's just continue anyway." So, if you're providing a man-in-the-middle attack, you can easily block probably block block the access to the yeah,、CRL. exactly. So, there's actually a couple of、uh, proposed replacement systems or augmentations to the existing. Uh, PKI infrastructure. One was、uh, put forth by a guy called Moxie Marlinspike.、Uh, his his idea was called Convergence, and basically what it would do is it would set up、um, these towers across the world, globally distributed, and. When you go to a website, you would query five, six, seven other t- of these towers and say, "Hey, are you all connecting to the same?" You connect to the same server and tell me back what certificate you've got.、Just、verifies nobody's man in the middleing. Every, yeah, the, the the likelihood that somebody could man in the middle of all those towers is lower, I guess. Exactly. So the the thing is, if you are if you get five out of seven responses aligned with yours, it's highly likely that you have the legitimate, and those two towers are being man in the middled. Man, can you imagine? Working as an IT director for one of these companies that issues certificates, and your private key gets compromised. I mean, what the heck?、Mm. Like, you would keep that thing under armed guard, like in a bank vault at the bottom, guarded by a cheetah. Like, <laughs> I don't understand what happened. It must have been an inside job or something, because.、Uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, you need these servers live to be able to issue certificates, but they need to be, you know, inside、yeah. your network, way, way inside.、Um, but as as you say, you would really want to keep a hold of these because your whole Business plan, your whole in source of revenue is based off of this trust that you have it installed. In fact, this Diginor, Nator, they actually filed for bankruptcy very shortly、Ouch. after having 
very yeah. shortly after having all their uh, their their root certificate removed well, from it's all the browsers. Yeah. It's worthless. absolutely and there's a worthless. trust issue there now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you as a brand, you have no no brand value anymore. Yeah, and I think that's you know for this type of attack, that's why some of the CA companies actually their root CA doesn't issue you know identity certs or anything else. It just issues subordinate CA certs, mm-hmm. and they basically once they issue them, they shut it down and lock it up. So it's not online. It can't get access. And that way, the subordinate CAs are the ones that are issuing the certs. And should something happen to those, they could always revoke, you know, any certs issued by them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, interesting stuff and scary. Uh, but let's go ahead and get into the episode. Uh, today we're going to be talking about lots of different technologies that have to do with VPN. And these are iOS VPN solutions. And the first one we're going to talk about is FlexVPN. And this is a fairly new technology. So, when why don't you just uh, spend a little bit of time and tell us what FlexVPN is for those that don't know. Sure. Um, uh, obviously, for listeners familiar with Cisco's uh, VPN solution, I'm pretty sure you guys have heard of uh, GetVPN, DMVPN, EasyVPN, uh, these different VPN solutions that we've had you know, to tailor for different deployment needs. Uh, FlexVPN happened to be the newest and the latest. Uh, it came out fairly recently, 15.2.1t. What it is 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 a unified user interface, a converged solution that pretty much will do uh, just about every type of VPN that we've had in the past, except for GetVPN. Uh, it will provide you a VPN solution for land-to-land tunnels, for remote access, and interestingly enough, for remote access, we would also support the native uh, Windows 7 uh, VPN solution. So you don't have to get a separate Cisco VPN client for that. Uh, and it would also support DMVPN-like dynamic spoke-to-spoke capabilities. It's pretty cool. It's so pretty you mean neat. it supports, you mean you configure this like umbrella architecture thing on your router and then all of a sudden now all these different types of VPNs can connect? Absolutely. Oh, okay. Right, so the umbrella architecture is called IKE v2, Ike version 2. Uh, very flexible, uh, a lot of uh, advantages over the existing IKE v1 implementation. Uh, it is a new standard, uh, offers a ton of flexibility in terms of uh, integration with AAA, integration with uh, uh, third-party vendor products. Um, you know, like I said, you know, in terms of the solution offering, it builds the foundation uh, you know, for, for this uh, consolidated UI, you know, to support a different type of technologies. So we're not actually adding any new technology or new way of doing things. It's just a new interface, like a, a wrapper. new way of configuring it, right? Uh, it, yes and no. There are subtle differences between FlexVPN and some of the existing VPN implementations. Uh, say, for example, with FlexVPN, we do support a potential full mesh capability like uh, DMVPN, dynamic spoke-to-spoke, yet the implementation requires individual point-to-point interfaces, whereas in DMVPN, the overall infrastructure is built on a multi-point GRE tunnel interface. So in the end, the user experience will be the same. Uh, We do provide the same functionalities, but there are subtle differences in the implementation in addition to just the user interface. Okay, so that's that's FlexVPN. That's 
like you said, I guess very, fairly new, and we're not going to cover that too much today on the epi- on the episode. We're going to focus mainly on Get VPN and DMVPN. So now let's switch over to DMVPN, which obviously, if um, folks have studied for the CCIE security, uh, they know about it. They know how to configure it, and it's pretty widely deployed. Uh, tell us about DMVPN and uh, when um, someone would want to use that as their VPN solution. So you would use DMVPN. Um, as a solution for extending your network over the internet. This is the most common use case. Um, Perfect uh, example of that is where you have your network and you want to have users that can telecommute from home. You want to provide them a virtual office solution. So you give them this router, they take it home, and behind that they plug in their phone and their computer. And then you basically want them to be on the network just as if they were sitting at their desk. Um, the the cool thing about DMVPN is you what all you have to do is set up the hub once, and then you can just add spokes uh, easily without having to update your hub. And what's cool about it is you know when it comes to dynamic, you know the dynamic nature of this VPN is uh, as JYT said, you know for this user. Uh, if you were to travel on business or whatever, you know, he could literally take this package, his DMVPN router, you know, possibly an IP phone, he can put that all in his suitcase, take it to wherever, uh, check into a hotel, you know, plug that into hotel rooms uh, broadband uh, connection, and you know, off, he, off the VPN comes up and he's got the virtual office set up again. So let's uh, compare that to the you know, what most listeners probably are already, you know, familiar with, which is just regular IPsec VPN and a, you know, mesh, full mesh tunnel VPN type configuration. So in that case, you can also deploy a home office type solution. Um, But unless you were doing dynamic IPsec VPN, you would have to know the tunnel endpoint and it would have to have the IP address. But we also do dynamic IPsec as well as easy VPN. So how about, you know, explain a little bit of the differences between those and DMVPN. Yeah, so the the DMVPN gives you a bit more of an enterprise-class solution. Uh, With the EasyVPN, all the clients are going to connect to one head end, and then it's going to work in a hub-spoke topology. So if I needed to speak to another spoke, I would have to send all my data up to the hub, and then send it down to the hub would have to send it back down to the other spoke. With a DMVPN, it's possible to build spoke-to-spoke communications. So in the case of when someone takes it home, there's very there's not going to be very much traffic from spoke-to-spoke, so there's not really much advantage there. But if you take an, uh, an environment, say something like a um, an enterprise that has lots of branch locations, i.e. Uh, you have a headquarters site and you have lots of sales sites out in different locations, uh, they they could build spoke-to-spoke communications, and you could have phone calls that run across there, or you could have video chats that run across there. Which is really advantageous because you're not passing all that traffic through the hub and you turning it out the hub's internet interface. Exactly. Right? You're, okay. you're basically cutting the latency of the connection in half. Uh, on top of that, another nice feature about DMVPN is the infrastructure it's built upon. Uh, DMVPN is actually encryption over a GRE encapsulated transport. What that means is that a lot of the layer three features like NAT, like firewall, like um, NetFlow, they they are very much uh, naturally integrated in the DMVPN solution compared to uh, say, for example, EasyVPN where it uses 
native IPsec as transport. So, so it gives you a more natural integration with other layer three features. Obviously, uh, with DMVPN, we take full advantage of the routing capability. You can have complete routing uh, capability inside of the VPN infrastructure to deliver routing, to deliver multicast QoS inside of the tunnel. So if you were to kind of break it all down, I mean, we've talked about some pretty complex topics here. If you were to say, uh, you have a client at one branch location, we'll use the branch example, and he wants to send some traffic to a client at a different branch location. Kind of walk through the steps of how DMVPN would go about doing that versus, obviously we talked about the sort of hub and spoke topology of standard like IPsec tunnels. So how would DM DMVPN handle that on a step-by-step -step basis? So there's, there's multiple different phases of DMVPN, and primarily we'll just talk about the, the latest phase and the more, more of the recommended way of doing things now. Um, what happens is you deploy the, the environment, the network, in a hub-spoke topology for, from a routing standpoint where your, your hub says, send all your traffic to me because that's 99.9% .9 of the time it's going to come to me anyway. And then if, I, if I'm the hub and I ever receive any traffic that's destined for a different spoke, I'm just going to say, hey spoke, there's a better way than just sending it through me. The spoke's going to say, oh really? Can you tell me the better way? And then I forward that request on and then the other spoke connects back to the first spoke and they build the communication there and then they, they send the messages across there. So it really is very dynamic in that nature. Yes, and, and the great thing about that is if there's some firewall or blocking in the connection between the spokes uh, that prevents that tunnel from ever building, we'll just continue using the hub-spoke topology. So the great thing about it is it's never going to hurt. It's only going to improve the situation. We'll just keep the connection up and keep traffic flowing through the hub. If the connection can successfully build, we'll use that and then everything will flow even better. So the foundational uh, building block, you know, for this dynamic capability is called uh, NextHop Resolution Protocol. That is the protocol that enables the endpoint to quote unquote discover uh, the other endpoints. So uh, effectively, if you want to look at it uh, using a simple example, uh, say for example, ARP, right? How do you know who else is on a local segment? Uh, you use ARP for that. This is very similar, you know, except for it operates at layer three versus layer two. Um, and another term that you may often hear about when it comes to DMVPN is NBMA, uh, non-broadcast multi-access. You know, effectively saying the same thing. It's similar to a layer two multi-access network, uh, but it runs over non-broadcast media. So in your careers in attack, you've been troubleshooting this stuff for years. Uh, what are some of the, I guess, uh, major things in the design phase? Because in this episode, we're really talking about the differences between the technologies and uh, maybe to someone that has, isn't familiar with it, how it basically works. But for that person that's taking the next step and might consider setting up their own DMVPN network, what are some of the major gotchas that you got to watch out for that you, know, you wish that other, um, your customers had heard about before they had started deploying it? Well, the first thing that I will, would, would recommend that if you're interested in setting this up, um, you can just Google for the term DMVPN Design and Configuration Guide. It's, it's basically a white paper that Cisco's put together that discusses the technology, how it works, and then the recommended settings on how to 
set up and deploy the the solution. It definitely goes over a lot of pain points or but with the example configuration um, eliminates and works around those pain points. But uh, back to your question, um, if I were to pick the biggest, um, you know, say if there is one category of problems that we see most often, uh, I would have to say it's probably scaling problems with DMVPN, wouldn't you say, JYT? Yes, yes. So, so that you know comes with the territory. You know, we are positioning DMVPN as a large-scale solution. You know, the question obviously is how large. How large? Yeah, yeah exactly. You <laughs> know, it's, it's not going to be infinitely uh, big. So, you know, sizing your network, uh, determine you know what exactly is going to be the bottleneck. You know, when you break the solution down to the individual components. You know, are you expecting to? encrypt a lot of traffic? Are you expecting to have a lot of routing neighbors? Are you expecting to have a lot of routing prefixes, even though you may not have so many routing neighbors? Those are all the type of questions that you have to think about uh, You know, when it comes to a large scale deployment. Uh, obviously, when you deploy DMVPN, say for example, 100 spokes, Right, uh, you can't do the linear math and say, well, you know, if I'm gonna deploy a thousand spokes, I'm just gonna multiply everything by ten. Uh, it it doesn't work that way typically. So I, you know, I hate to harp on the problems, but what are some of the an example tech case? You know, the the ringer rings in, a customer's having a, having trouble. What are those cases like? What are those symptoms the customers experience in those cases? Well, some of them was uh, is pretty much one of the famous things of uh, if you're running a IGP over the over the network like an EIGRP um, what would normally be a multicast packet in a layer 2 network well we've got all these virtualized point-to-point -point tunnels so the hub if he wants to send out a broadcast packet or a multicast packet has to be sent out to say all a hundred spokes so he has to take that broadcast packet replicated a hundred times, wrap that up in in, okay. in a different GRE packet, and then encrypt it a hundred times, and then send it out. Now, the router can actually do that extremely quickly. So this one packet then causes a spike of um, a burst that could potentially get bottlenecked somewhere down the network. So this one packet times by 400 times suddenly gives you basically like a 30 megabit per second stream. A very small instantaneous Yeah, for like, for like an eighth of a second, we have th 30 megabits per second. Mm -hmm. Well, that can easily blow through some of uh, QoS buffers or policing. And what happens is those last ones, they get tail dropped. Ah, uh, yes. So uh, if you come onto the network last, you may have all your EIGRP packets being dropped. And a symptom of that is if you have 500 spokes, you know, you end up seeing some, some spokes, you know, keep flapping. Uh, and uh, the error you're going to see is uh, hold down timer expired for EIGRP. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the interesting with that problem is that, you know, some of the tools that we have, you know, even with, say, the 30 second uh, uh, interface, uh, you know, counter uh, granularity, you're not going to be able to catch these sort of a problems um, because we simply don't have that level of granularity when you have hundreds, in some cases thousands of packets that get replicated in a very short interval, right? We're talking, you know, at the level of milliseconds. Uh, but what will be interesting is if you were to take a sniffer trace, 
right, outside of the hub router, then you're gonna see this pattern repeat itself. Every so often, if you were using the default five seconds timer, you're gonna see whenever the hub sends out a hello, you're gonna see a burst of traffic coming out of the hub router. And that burst just may not be absorbed uh, well enough further downstream, you know, due to resource uh, issues, buffers, queues, like JYT said. Yeah, and that's a, that's a hard one to see because you almost need a microscope, right, to see those tiny drops, but I don't know the symptoms you experience on these routers or they can't connect. So narrowing it back down to the root cause of the problem, I can imagine, could take some time. Uh, but you, know, you guys know what to look for, you know, I guess. The same routers continuing to uh, drop EIGRP. Yes. So, uh, you know, to mitigate the problem, obviously that's probably the question that's going to come up next, right? You know, what do you do, right? Um, depending on the problem, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, there's really not, not a whole lot you can do. If, you know, at the hub router, you only have a T3, you know, going upstream to the provider, your bandwidth is limited to whatever the, T, the T3 can do. And if you don't have enough buffering capability, then you're just going to end up dropping. So some of the solution for that sort of a scenario is you could, you know, break your DMVPN domain into smaller domains so that when you replicate hellos to a certain number of neighbors, instead of replicating 500 times, maybe you can do 50 instead. Uh, obviously, in that particular scenario, the most optimal solution is to, you know, upgrade your pipe to yeah. you know to the internet right don't do a t3 you know get a 100 meg or or sub rate um you know gigabit ethernet okay now and we we I actually made a couple changes in the code that uh doesn't actually fix the issue that we were talking about here but uh kind of mitigates it um in the scenario we've got here is the the last people in the list those were the ones that were having their packets dropped so we've actually set up an order so that it randomizes or rotates who gets it or what not. So the the little bit of resiliency that EIGRP has in different hold times means uh. that you're going to get one out of, you know, as, as long as you get one out of, you know, the five hellos, then you keep your... You're randomizing who doesn't get their packet intermittently, so the same... Okay. Yeah. So I call that statistical uh, luckiness. <laughs> So guys, we talked about DMVPN and, and some of the issues that you run into when deploying it and uh, troubleshooting it. Uh, how about GitVPN? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, the, you know, I have to say, you know, the question is kind of uh, vague uh, because, you know, actually that's probably, you know, one of the, you know, the, the common misconceptions about GetVPN. Uh, you know, folks think that uh, GetVPN and DMVPN uh, they are in some cases interchangeable. In some cases, GetVPN is the next, uh, you know, new technology that would replace DMVPN. Uh, the truth of the matter is they are, you know, tailored for different deployment scenarios. So it's not exactly apples to apples comparison. Um, so just to give you give uh, give you folks some background on this, a GetVPN is designed to run over a private IP infrastructure. So right there, uh, you know, as comparing, you know, uh, comparing to DMVPN, you know, when we said we can run DMVPN over the internet, that is probably one of the things that GetVPN will not be able to do. Uh, you so you say over my private infrastructure, like my internal network? Uh, so to be more precise, a private IP infrastructure 
what I mean by that is a end-to-end IP routing infrastructure um, that does not require NAT. So, so a perfect example of that would be if I was a enterprise and I leased uh, an MPLS connection between my branches' locations through someone like Sprint or Verizon. Is that is that what we're looking at here? That's that's exactly what we're looking at. That's actually one of the examples of this private infrastructure that we were talking about. Obviously, if you are still uh, say in the 1990s, you're still on. ATM frame relay, uh, that's considered a private IP infrastructure. It's not shared by anybody else. Uh, so in that scenario, GetVPN may be a better fit compared to DMVPN due to its uh, you know better scalability and, and some of these other nice features with GetVPN. And just you know, I, I guess if you've got a private corporate infrastructure spanning your worldwide organization, why would you need VPN? But I guess you know, obviously folks don't want to necessarily trust their ISP or they want to encrypt their communication across that private, quote unquote, private IP space. That's exactly right. You know, I would say over 10 years ago, MPLS was positioned as a quote unquote secure private uh, VPN solution. Uh, now that we know, you know, although it's unlikely, but somebody could, you know, just go, you know, dig up the fiber and patch it and somehow steal information, you know, out of that uh, physical link. Um, so a lot of the government, especially uh, in sectors like, uh, you know, healthcare, financial, government, there is mandate uh, that regardless of, you know, what layer one, layer two that you run, you do have to run encryption, you know, for, for these type of uh, uh, environments. So what, what benefit does GitVPN provide you over just running a native old VPN over these uh L2 environments. Um, what's nice about GetVPN is it introduces this concept of a group encryption. So we're actually doing away with the pairwise VPN concept. Uh, keep in mind with traditional IPsec, you know, when we talk about a tunnel, we're talking about two endpoints. Uh, with essays, you know, that's the security contract ne negotiated between the endpoints. With GetVPN, is a group membership type of solution where you only have to be in the group. Uh, you don't need to, need to know how many uh, other group members are in the same GetVPN domain. Uh, you don't you don't have to establish any of these tunnel pairwise tunnel relationships. So effectively, that completely decouples the control and the data plane, and therefore that's what it gives you the most uh, performance and the scalability with GetVPN. I think um, a way that, you know, really resonated with me um, and how to visualize this is, you know, if you, you know, if you have a whiteboard in front of you, you know, draw a big circle on it. And, uh, you know, that circle is your boundary. And your network can be in the circle and out of the circle. But basically, anything that enters that circle gets encrypted. And as it comes out of that circle, it gets decrypted. And so any device that's attaches to that circle is in the group. And so therefore, while we say it has to have a private connection uh, or you have to have a private infrastructure is basically because anything in that circle has to be private. Um, because in order for a packet to leave that circle and for you to understand it, a device 
has to be there at the edge of that circle to receive that encrypted packet and unencrypt it. If if you don't have that device there, then it goes encrypted and nobody can understand it. So it, it's really, uh, I think that really helped, you know, resonate with me and really trying to grasp what this meant versus tunnels where, you know, you kind of indicate what the endpoints are and, you know, the packet gets routed to a specific destination, which knows how to unencrypt it. Whereas with GitVPN, again, it gets routed wherever. And as soon as it leaves that circle, that's the device that does the unencryption. But you still have the concept of, you know, a shared symmetric key that you're using to encrypt the data, and then, you know, the router at the other end of the circle has that same key. It's using that to decrypt the data, and it forwards it on. But, I mean, how are, if there's no SAs built between all the routers, you know, how do all of them sort of share this same security association or this same information they need to encrypt and decrypt their packets to whoever receives or sends it? Yeah, so the... In GetVPN, there's a different, there's a new role that isn't present in any of the other ones. Um, there's a role that's overarching over the whole system, and it's called the key server. And it is exactly what it sounds like. It is the server that all the group members, all the encrypting devices, connect to and say, hey, give me a copy of the keys. And the key server is the one that makes up the keys and gives out the keys to all the encrypting and decrypting devices and he gives out the same information to all of them so so you know another way of describing this would be uh the, that key server you know would be the brain of the whole GetVPN system uh and it provides this central policy role on the control plane once the policy gets pushed down to the individual group members, you know, these are the devices that are responsible for encrypting, decrypting at the boundaries of that circle that we were talking about. Um, the actual data, data plane encryption is actually done in a distributed fashion, but the control plane is strictly centralized. You know, the key server does most of the, the talking, the policy management, uh, you know, the key distribution, and in this case, the group members, they're fairly dumb. They're very, there's very minimal control plane activity they participate in, uh, you know, compared to a point-to-point -point tunnel where you have a lot of say in terms of what policy you want, right? What policy the other guy want, and you guys do this negotiation. Whereas in GetVPN, a group member is more or less passive. It takes the policy, you know, once it's authenticated to be part of that group, it takes the policy and implements it. That's all it does. You touched base on uh, the concept of authentication there. Uh, obviously, to I would assume the key server. Uh, what are some of the security concerns about you know that communication between your group members and that key server? It sounds like there's important data, keys, and information like that being exchanged. Uh, what what do we need to worry about? Well, you really don't need to worry about it too much because we the in the implementation of GetVPN, you leverage all the existing uh, uh, an existing security protocol, ISACAMP or Ike. Um, we just reuse that to build uh, an encrypted connection between the group member and the key server. Just don't use certificates from that company uh, we talked about earlier. <laughs> yes. So. Um, that way, we just reuse that existing protocol just to build a, a small little data connection between the group member and the key server, and then the key server can just send the keys down to the to the group member. So, so obviously, to deploy this technology, you've got to have your own private IP infrastructure that you know is not going across the internet. Um, besides that, 
uh, as a major, I guess maybe that's one of the major misconceptions that people have. What are, um, is there anything else that, you know, you would want folks to know about GetVPN before they try to deploy it or that they should be aware of? Uh, if we're talking about some of the unique uh, either features or capabilities about GetVPN, uh, one thing that come to mind is uh, replay. Uh, when we are talking about a pairwise a tunnel implementation, replay meaning you know if somebody were to replay a packet in the network, right? Because he's in the path, uh, that can easily be t be detected using a sequence number or counter-based replay mechanism. If I have seen packet one through five, another one that comes in with a sequence number four, then I pretty much know it's a replayed packet, right? I would just drop it in terms of, uh, 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 instead of turning my CPU to try to decrypt it uh, and do whatever. Uh, but as you can see, with a group VPN concept, that can become fairly difficult because the group members themselves, you know, they do not synchronize in the same sequence number space. So when it comes to GetVPN, we implement this, uh, uh, what we call the time-based anti-replay mechanism. So we would actually implement a pseudo timestamp, more or less like a number, you know, if you're familiar with the Unix time, right? Uh, it roughly represents a, a time value, but it's not like your NTP time, it's not like a wall clock. Um, it, it's a time value that we can measure using a number to detect replay packet. Yeah, that's one of the unique features, you know, when it comes to a group concept, um, because we no longer can keep track of uh, sequence numbers, you know, on a pairwise tunnel basis. It, it's similar to NTP in the fact that uh, the key server makes up this pseudo time and he's the reference everyone sync your pseudo time clock to me so that all the group members are supposed to have the same clock ticking and what happens is when I encrypt it I just stamp it with my time and then the decryptor checks the time and says is it within you know a, a window of 5, 20, 30 seconds and if it is, then I'm going to let it in. If it's not, then it's most likely a stored and a replayed packet. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk about some TAC cases, interesting TAC cases that you guys have worked on with regard to DMVPN or GitVPN and what the symptoms were, uh, you know, and what you did to narrow down the problem and work with the customer to find out the problem and then mitigate or solve the issue. What are some interesting ones that come to mind that might be interesting? Well, unlike a DMVPN, um, where the control plane and the data plane are integrated, right? It's it's an overlay. Your routing runs over the top of your encryption. With GetVPN, you actually have a separation. All we're doing is we're encrypting the packets flowing through, whereas our routing protocol, we're just we're communicating in the clear text to our provider, our private network provider, and that obviously can't be encrypted otherwise the the provider wouldn't know how to route packets. So a couple of times we've we've run into an issue where the VPN, the group members came out of sync, they lost um, communication and the keys, but the routing still pointed them to send the traffic out the thing. So they're trying to send the packet out in clear text or they've got a policy that says if you don't know the keys, drop the packet. So we end up running into a situation where routing still says, okay, send it out, but we don't have the correct or valid 
crypto information. So we end up black holing the traffic. So in that case, you get a whole bunch of replay error, syslogs, or what do you do to see that is the issue? Generally, you just see lots of dropped packets. Pings don't work. You know, you're, you're monitoring your WhatsApp gold starts ringing bells and whatnot. Do you see that in, how do you get the decrypt? I mean, you know, from my, back when I was doing a lot of VPN stuff, you know, I would look at the encrypt and decrypt counters. Mm -hmm. Is that what you are looking for on both routers? You see it encrypting into this um, circle <laughs> and yeah. then no decrypts or decrypt errors on the receiving end? Oh yeah, you would you would look at the group member and then say, hey, do you have do you have the keys installed? Oh no, you don't. Okay, well let's figure out why that is. And if you do, then okay, yes. Are you encapsulating? Are you encrypting? And then you have to do the normal troubleshooting of normal routing. Can you do a trace route? Where does it go through? Which router is the exit point of that circle? Um, and then you also do the checking on that side too. I love that we're coining new terminology for GetVPN: the circle, the circle, the, circle, the inner yeah. circle, and the outer circle. That's right. Uh, by the way, there's uh, at the on the website at the the show notes we actually have uh, two diagrams: one of GetVPN and one DMVPN, just to highlight the differences between the technologies. Okay, cool. So, just one clarification: um, when we're talking about GetVPN, um, mentioned that you know think of it as a as a circle, and just wanted to clarify that it doesn't have to be a circle. The whole point is that. Um, you know, it could be an oval. <laughs> it could be anything. It's just that that area, um, in order to leave out that area, the packet has to be unencrypted. So think of it this way. If you have a endpoint router um, and you're trying to access a device behind that endpoint router, if there's multiple paths to get to that destination and you encrypt it on the, the near side in order to get to, you know, any path that you could take to get to that endpoint router, um, as it leaves that area, whether it be a circle, oval, uh, or whatever you want to call it, it would have to get decrypted um, before it can get there. So if you have one path that it takes, it would be decrypted, and another path that it's not part of, you know, the, that path isn't part of the group membership, then that would not work in this scenario. It the, the point is, yeah, no matter what shape we call it, you can't have a hole in it. Uh, I'm going for amoeba on this one. Can, Dave, can we call it a squircle? If you want to be really secure, just encrypt it, and then just have one router, and then never decrypt it, and that's perfect security. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, common problems, uh, we have seen this particular problem a couple times, actually. Um, what's interesting is a customer would typically call in and say, hey, you know, our GetVPN, you know, we've implemented, everything worked great, no problem. Uh, we've been adding group members to the network. Uh, and then out of the blue, one day, my GetVPN just, just broke. It doesn't work anymore. Uh, as it turned out, you know, what the problem is, is that, well, b before we talk about the problem, you know, I want to give a little bit of background, uh, you know, on uh, the redundancy model with GetVPN, because it is fairly different from, say, for example, DMVPN. Um, when we talk about the, the architecture with GetVPN, obviously, you know, the first thing you're probably going to think about is on the control plane, you have a server and the client architecture. Right, and for most folks, that probably raises a red flag. What happens if the server, server does? Server and client. Uh, you know, for folks lucky enough to work with Lane, you know, you probably know, you know, the type of headaches that you have to deal with, you know, with that sort of architecture. So the problem is, yeah, exactly. You know, single point of failure. Right. What happens if this key server were to go? And this key server being the brain of the whole network that controls all the security policies, all the keys, everything in this GetVPN domain. What happens if the key server were to uh, 
you know, lose connectivity to the whole network. With GetVPN, the redundancy model that we have implemented uh, is called a cooperative key server model or, or co-op uh, key server. What it does is it shares the registration load from the group members. And also these uh, redundant key servers, they will be uh, able to take on the primary key server's role you know, when it comes to redistributing the, the keys, the essays, and the policies to all the group members. So in the event of a single key server failure, uh, hopefully another key server will take over that responsibility. The problem with this approach is that when the key servers communicate with each other using the co-op protocol, uh, depending on the size of the GetVPN network, these messages can get excessively big. And that's exactly what happened to uh, this problem that we were just talking about. Uh, this customer, they were running the problem, running the GetVPN network without any problems. As the network grows, because the key servers, they would have to sync up with each other on the group members. You know, they have to have this list of IP addresses that's part of the GetVPN group. This packet that would have to be communicated between the key, the key servers, it gets really large. Large enough that it's bigger than the default uh, huge buffer size on a iOS router which is uh, 16,000 bytes. So this is before, we're not talking about an MTU issue here, we're talking nope. about unable to fragment or, uh, you know. It, it's an internal construct mm. that the router needs to hold a packet before it can send and receive, you know, certain information. So when that happens, the symptom is we can no longer sync up, right? The network could get partitioned in the sense that now, if the key servers, they can't communicate, communicate with each other naturally, they probably think, you know, the other key servers have failed, right? So they all announce themselves to be the primary key server. They all become active, right? They all start sending out keys to the group members that have registered with them. So effectively, uh, with this one GetVPN network, now you have multiple partitions in it where some of the group members may have different information from other group members. And, and the symptom of that is uh, fairly easy to identify, you know, other than the fact that, you know, you, you no all longer hell have break end, loose. all hell break loose, you no longer have end-to-end -end communication. Uh, but on the key server, you do see a buffer failure. Um, the, the mitigation for that problem is to increase the, the huge buffer size to 65,000. And, so. and we don't want to scare anybody. I mean, we're, we're always seeing the problems in the tech, so we talk about this stuff. Um, but what are some guidelines as far as, I mean, I know it's hard to tell, but how many, if somebody's running a GetVPN network now, how do they know if they're getting close to hitting this issue or, or how they can understand when they might? Um, the buffer limitation typically gets hit when you have around 1,500 group members. Uh, with the default huge buffer size you know, tuned up to 65,000 bytes, uh, you could probably scale the GetVPN network to 5,000 group members. And I'm assuming we don't just turn it up to the max by default because we don't want, that would take up more memory. Uh, if you need to, add each the smallest size of an addressable chunk would be what reserved to that larger value so we'd use up more memory, is that mm -hmm. the idea? Um, uh, I think it's okay, you know, to tune a huge buffer uh, if you anticipate this to be a problem. You know, obviously, 
the network administrator would know, or hopefully he would know, how big the network it is uh, and how big it's going to grow into. Uh, so if you anticipate the network to be, say, 2,000 nodes, you know, we would strongly recommend you tune the buffer to 65,000. So you got 2,000 router nodes on the circle. Uh, investigate this. And we'll have links to the show in the show notes to how you can look up the command reference for this and, and learn more about it. Uh, and as I mentioned before, right, uh, if, you, if you're thinking about doing deploying these things, check out the design and configuration guides that are available on cisco.com. This, this actual problem that we've been talking about is documented and, and explained, and they also give the recommendations on what values should be used. Now, I know in uh, prior episodes, we've talked about certificates and other features on our firewalls that uh, become problematic if you have to replace the firewall. Certain things you have to take into consideration, especially with things like keys and things like that. Now, with a key server, if the hardware dies and we go to replace it, from a customer's perspective, what are some considerations that they want to take into play so that they can bring a replacement in seamlessly? Um, I interesting that you brought up that point because uh, going back to this co-op redundancy model, what happens is with the rekey messages being pushed down to the group members, these rekey messages, they're actually signed by a private key on a mm -hmm. key server, right? Obviously, that's for security measure. You don't want anybody to spoof the key server, to send out a rekey message. Um, you want the group member to have some way of validating this is indeed coming from the key server that I have registered with. And the mechanism to do that is through the RSA key pair. Uh, so, so the concern is, what if you know the hardware dies on this router, therefore I don't have that RSA key pair anymore because the private key of the RSA key pair that's stored you know, internally, that's not visible you know, to a user. Uh, the requirement for running co-op between the key servers is that that RSA key pair has to be generated as exportable RSA key pairs so that all of the key servers in the same GetVPN group, they can all share that RSA key pair. I mean, the reason sh it should be pretty straightforward. When the primary fails, you don't want the secondary to use his own RSA key pair to sign these rekey messages. Because what happens is that the group members having the public key of the primary key server, he's not going to be able to decrypt them. He's not going to be able to validate these rekey messages. So uh, other other problems with GetVPN, um, one thing we were talking about, I guess, in the when we were planning this was around, and the confusion I had, and when we were drawing it up on the whiteboard and we were drawing the circle, was around um, not being able to do any NAT or you know that private network for uh, GitVPN. So explain why that is. I mean, why can't I have a NAT device in front of one of my spoke or not uh, routers on the circle? So with traditional VPNs, what you do is right when you take a packet and encrypt it, you actually put a whole brand new IP header on it, and it's the source and destination of it is going to be the source and destination of the VPN tunnel. Because the whole idea is you get the packet, you wrap it up, and I send it to the other receiving peer, he decrypts it and then just puts the, that inner packet yeah, on the Yeah, the packet's wire. destined to that router's interface that's going to decrypt it. Yeah, exactly. It, it's 
the inner IP packet source and destination is different than the outer IP packet source and destination. Now, with GetVPN, we mentioned that you must have a private IP routable end-to-end network to be able to use um, GetVPN. And the reason for this is when we encrypt the packet, let's just say an A to B packet, we put a new IP header on, and that IP header is the same as the one on the inside. So the source and destination of that encrypted packet is the same. So what's going to happen is you're going to encrypt it, wrap it up, and put the same header on the outside and send it off into your cloud. Now your cloud is completely, uh, your private network, your cloud, is completely oblivious to that as an encrypted packet. It's just going to follow its normal routing rules. And then it'll traverse through the private network, and when it gets to the edge of that squircle, or the circle, or the cloud, or the DMV, uh, the amoeba. Or the amoeba, right? The other person's going to see this, the other, the other group member is going to see this encrypted packet, just decrypt it based on the keys that it's already been given, pull that in a packet out, and continue routing that packet. So you may say, okay, well, I've got this private network, I should be able to do with whatever I want with it. But things that come into problems are as if you're doing NAT network address translation. Because the inner packet and the outer packet are supposed to be the same IP address, Right. If we come to decrypt it and the outer packet has been changed to a different address, when we do a sanity check on that inner packet, we're going to say, hey, this doesn't make sense, this doesn't work, and then we dec- and we just reject the packet. In, in addition, um, you won't be able to route stuff correctly back to the original destination because when I encrypt it, I'm going to encrypt it back to the, the post-natted IP address, and that's not going to work out. Yeah, the router it might arrive at at the egress of the circle might not be the router that could actually forward that packet on to uh, whoever you were intending to send it to. I guess so. Yeah, it it is uh, uh, this what we call header preservation. It's fairly unique to GetVPN. Uh, there are other implications uh, other than the NAT example. You know, one other thing I can think of is PathMTU discovery which doesn't work. The reason being, when the end device sends a packet, right, uh, that packet gets encapsulated inside of this ESP header. With the header preserved, if that packet were to be traversing somewhere in the cloud and we're getting to a point where the egress MTU is smaller than the packet size, Naturally, what happens in IP is that device is going to try to perform PathMTU discovery. It does that by sending back a ICMP type 3 code 4 message toward the source. The problem there is now we have a packet that's coming from the host, right, because we have not modified the source and destination of the IP, uh, but the protocol is ESP. So the problem, uh, the the packet is going to traverse all the way back to the host, uh, but that packet is going to fail authentication in the PathMTU discovery process. You know, the host says, oh, I never sent a ESP packet. You know, I don't know what this is about. Therefore, he drops the packet on the floor, and he keeps on sending packet of the size as before. So you end up uh, in a PathMTU discovery black hole condition. Uh, so, so there are you know these sort of uh, problems that's somewhat unique to get VPN because of header preservation. 
Yeah, no, we've been talking a lot about, uh, you know, getting DMVPN here. Um, I mean, this is a pretty good example of Cisco eating its own dog food, right? I mean, we do DMVPN for, you know, uh, basically most of our employees as part of our CVO solution here. Uh, and it's fantastic. I mean, you're, you have these connections at home that have wireless phones at your home locations. And I mean, it's essentially a complete extension of our primary corporate network. Yeah, and there's actually a cool little way that you can deploy these as well. There's a there's a protocol called secure device provisioning. So you can actually just send someone home with this router that's still in the package. You've never actually taken it out of a Cisco box. They can plug in, plug behind it. You give them three steps. Open up your browser, type in this address, put your username and password in, type in this address, click OK, and it just automatically goes, connects, downloads a copy of the configuration that you want on the device and sets it up and writes and builds a connection and does it completely securely and you've never had to actually do anything to the box. I did it at home and it worked. Well, that does it for episode number 25 of the Tax Security Podcast. Uh, thanks to our special guests, JYT, Jay Young Taylor, and Wen Zhang. And uh, as always, you can reach out to us by emailing securityshow at cisco.com. You can visit the webpage to watch the show notes, as well as view our other episodes at www.cisco.com slash go slash tax security podcast. You can also find us on iTunes. And uh, Magnus, why don't you tell the folks uh, a cool new way that they can reach out to us and also maybe get their voices on the air? We have a phone number. All right. So here on the Tax Security Podcast team, we set up a voicemail account with uh, Google Voice. Thanks, Google. And uh, we've set it up so you guys can call in and leave a voicemail for us. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback about the show, by all means, do leave that. Again, you can leave detailed messages, questions, and if you would like for us to perhaps play your question on the air and get it answered, leave us permission to do so, and be sure to tell us how to pronounce your name, and we'll be glad to uh, give you a shout-out. So, thank you. Maybe you should tell them the number. Oh, the number. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the number is uh, country code 1-424-272-6877. And Blaine, what does that spell? One four two four CSCOTSP, and uh, you don't need to remember that number. Uh, just go to the Tax Security Podcast episode listing page, and uh, you can see it right there. All right, thanks for listening. We'll uh, see you next time.